Let us pray. O holy God, by the power of your Holy Spirit at at work in us and among us, help us to hear this your word as your living word unto us, shaping us, calling us, molding us, convicting us, encouraging us, making us into your likeness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A quick reminder, we are in the book of Jeremiah this fall. In the past two weeks, we have looked at the person of Jeremiah in the book of Jeremiah. Two weeks ago, we looked at Jeremiah's call story, where God calls Jeremiah to be a preacher to the house of Israel and and speak a, a difficult word. Last week, we looked at Jeremiah about midway through this call, and a lot of difficulty has unfolded. It has been difficult to to preach to the people and to have them reject the message and reject him. And we heard God respond kind of pointedly in the middle of of it all, saying, hey, if you're having a hard time running the race with humans, how are you going to run with horses? How are you going to do when it gets even harder, Jeremiah? And in this series this fall, we're going to see a little bit more of Jeremiah's personal story in the midst of all this. But for this morning and for the next couple weeks, we're going to really start to turn into away from Jeremiah the person so much and more the substance of the message that God through Jeremiah preaches. And in particular today, we turn to chapter 2. This section begins what is a very extended section of God's accusations against Israel. There is a lot of detail in all that accusation, but these few verses at the front end, chapter 2, really summarize the core of the issue. And they fall just after uh, these first three verses of chapter 2, where Israel is described as the beautiful bride of God. God and Israel, they were once married, a beautiful, trusting relationship, lover and beloved. But now, starting with verse 4 and going through verse 13, here is where things are. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your ancestors find in me, that they went far from me, and went after worthless things, and became worthless themselves? They did not say, Where is the Lord, who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in the land of deserts and pits, a land of drought and deep darkness, and a land that no one passes through? Where no one lives. I brought you into a plentiful land to eat its fruit and its good things. But when you entered, you defiled my land, made my heritage an abomination. The priests did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who handled the law did not know me. The rulers transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Therefore, once more, I accuse you, says the Lord, and I accuse your children's children. Cross to the coast of Cyprus and look. Send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has ever been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for something that does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, says the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and dug out cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that can hold no water. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Our New Testament reading comes from John chapter 1, verses 38 and 39, a very small section in the Gospel of John where, very early on, where a couple disciples start their following of Jesus. And it reads like this. When Jesus turned and saw them, these two following him, he said to them, what are you looking for? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have you ever been in a situation where uh, you were just so thirsty, but you don't have any kind of cup, any kind of container, but there is some clean drinking water in front of you. Maybe it's in a tub or, or some kind of non-polluted fresh body of water, or maybe it's coming out of, of, a, of a faucet, but you can't quite stick your head under there. And what do we do? We cup our hands and, and try to, to scoop the water like this. We put it under that faucet, and, and we work really hard to, to layer the fingers just so, and squeeze the fingers very tightly, and get it to our mouth pretty quickly. Why? Because every time we do this, we know the water just starts seeping through. No matter how tightly we get our fingers and our hands just so, it always happens, and so we take a little bit, but it's never nearly the same amount that we, we got at first. And if you're thirsty... It is so frustrating a way to drink. That is akin to the description God gives about the house of Jacob when they turn from following God. In verse 13, God's imagery is actually not cupped hands, right, but cracked cisterns. And God's describing the people's sin. My people, they've dug out cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that will hold no water. I saw some of these cisterns a couple years ago in the Holy Land, and some of them are, are pretty large rooms carved right into hard rock these these cisterns they have these two or three foot wide openings and then they balloon or curve out in almost a bell-shaped kind of pattern for some of them are 15 20 feet deep others are 40 and 50 feet deep and then they they they, they carve these out by by hand and primitive tools and then they put this sticky lime substance on the, the walls to help make it waterproof you can start to imagine just the intense Difficult work involved, legs, arms, back, hands, primitive tools to get these huge rooms. And during the rainy season, they would have made these, uh, these channels that the water would flow to into these two or three foot openings. And then it would be a reservoir of water for the dry season. And God is telling the people in Jeremiah chapter 2, there is a leak in all of their cisterns. What you are doing with your lives and turning from me is is futile. All the sweat, all the labor, all the work of your hands will leave you sitting in a dark, cracked place, thirsty. In fact, in chapter 1 of of the book of Jeremiah, God warns the people of trusting in the things that their hands have made. And God's not only pointing out the idols their hands make to worship other gods, but, but, but putting a fundamental trust in anything made by human hands or human ingenuity. Cisterns. Cisterns will take care of us. Cisterns are worth our time, our energy, our sweat, our entire focus, because cisterns will ensure we are satiated. Cisterns hold so much water, they will ensure we can be alive and be productive You are digging cracked cisterns. 
And this is not just God's declaration here, but really you find the same idea put forth throughout Scripture. Those of you who are here in the spring for the, the sermon series in Ecclesiastes, you, remember, you may remember how the, the author talks about how pursuing all these different facets of life when they are done apart from God is a chasing after the wind. Vanity of vanities, meaningless, a chasing after the wind. But whether it's water or it's wind as the main metaphor, seeking life apart from God is always seen in Scripture as pursuing something that is so close, the wind, the the water, and yet painfully and constantly elusive. Have we ever known this to be true in our own lives? When I get that next job, when I get the promotion... Once we can situate this organization, this church, in in this way, once the event is organized just so, once I finally get into a, a healthy relationship, once I get into this particular program, this particular school, once once I'm recognized for this particular achievement, once once I make this goal, once this happens, there's going to be some real satiation. And notice, none of what I've named here is is even bad. In fact, a lot of it's quite good. And yet, none of them by themselves are foolproof receptacles of living water. Hoping in any one of them to satiate the deep longings of being human. The soul longings, the ones that long for substance and joy and life. Hoping in any one of those kinds of things is like holding water and cupping it close. And why does it keep pouring back through? I was reading an article in ESPN, the magazine. They did it just a couple weeks ago. And one of the best players in the NFL, it's a quarterback named Aaron Rodgers. But it was not a story on sports, but a story on seeking. Rodgers, some of you may know, he won the Super Bowl a few years back with the Green Bay Packers. And the intrigue for this particular story from ESPN, the magazine, was this line that Rodgers said to a friend the night that, that they won it all. I've been to the bottom... I've been to the top, and now I know peace will come from somewhere else. All the money, all the success, all the reputation, all the good reputation, all the goodwill from the people, all the really great teammates, all the funny discount double-check commercials, the cistern isn't holding water. God, through Jeremiah, is pointing out the painful futility of finding water apart from God as the essential source. And actually, God's description of Israel's current state is even more painful and tragic than just watching people dig at a hard labor at something that is leaking. Did you hear God's full statement? My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and dug cisterns that are leaking. God's pointing out the whole time that the people are, are digging and labor and trying cupping their hands there's been a water fountain right there that they've forsaken or abandoned rejected deserted it's it's a marital term actually a term for marriage a breaking of the covenant of course this is always the problem right with any sort of cistern making you start digging away in this deep cavernous space and, and 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 the further you go right the less light there is The further you go digging down, the less ability you have to even notice there might be a fountain right there outside this thing. The further you go, actually the more committed you kind of get to the cistern working because it's the only reality you can see. 
and we wonder, how does this happen? I mean, how do a people go from this beautiful season that is alluded to in Jeremiah uh, uh, chapter 2 that I read, just read verse 6 and 7. This beautiful season, right, where God took them out, out, out of slavery and Egypt and into the promised land and lovingly and attentively met their every need in the wilderness. How, how do these people who knew firsthand the certainty and joy and provision and presence of this living fountain, how do those same people end up in a dark rock query of their own making, digging and working and callously going forward in futility so deep they don't even see the ever-present drinking fountain? I mean, how, right, do the people of God get to a point where they stop being able to see the living God? The first few verses of this proclamation give us the key insight. Because it is in these verses that a particular critique of God's people is made twice. Twice God underscores this one particular thing Israel has failed to continue doing. In particular, he points out the problem among Israel's leaderships. The the priests, the makers of the law, the rulers, the prophets. Saying this group in in particular has failed to do this, this one essential thing. And not doing this one essential thing has put them on this trajectory of digging crack cisterns. The one thing, my people did not say, where is the Lord? They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt and led us in the wilderness? It is such a simple question and yet so vital. Because it's a question that implies an active seeking, an ongoing longing to know and follow the Lord. It's an active belief that God is a responsive God. And so that in asking the question, where is the Lord, there's also this genuine hope and assurance that God is going to show up. In fact, God is presently somehow showing up. Where is the Lord is not an abstract classroom philosophical, where is God question. No, Lord is a specific term to reference the God who freed the people and provided in the wilderness and led like a fire at night in a cloud by day. Where is the Lord is asking about a very particular present God. It's a faithful question. In fact, you see that question asked all the time in the psalmist, right? When, there is, when they're in seasons of great angst, great pain, great confusion, great injustice. Psalm 10, why do you hide yourself? That's a form of where is the Lord? Why have you forsaken me? That's Psalm 22. How long, O Lord? That's a bunch of the Psalms. Where is your steadfast love? That's Psalm 89. Asking where is the Lord is not a question that lacks faith, but is in fact emblematic of a a fervent longing faith. But... It is not just a question that gets asked in the dire, in the difficult times. It is a question to be asked continually in every season of life. Jeremiah is proclaiming that the people forgot to ask this basic question in a continual manner. There's this great story near the beginning of the Gospel of John that that I just read a, a bit earlier in worship. These two disciples are following Jesus and they ask, Where are you staying? Now, if you know anything about the Gospel of John, you know that the whole Gospel is layered thick with dramatic 
irony, where the reader knows so much more about what's going on than the people actually in the story itself. Where are you staying? That is a question thick with dramatic irony. At one level, the disciples are, of course, quite literally asking Jesus, where are you eating and sleeping tonight? But John writes this brief story knowing that we, the reader, know the prologue of John that was just a little bit before this reading. We have that information. And the prologue of John that we would have read talks about how the God of the universe has come to make this earth God's home in Jesus. God is making a home among humanity. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so John knows that when we hear the disciples' question, where are you staying? We know the question has two answers. Where is Jesus, the God of the universe, staying? Well, he's staying right here. He made the earth his home. He walks among us. He walks among the realities of humanity. The the living fountain is right here. In fact, John 15 later on says he, he abides in us. Where is Jesus? He's here. And, second answer, as the story itself from John 1, 38 and 39 makes clear, more specifically answering the question, where is Jesus staying? Jesus responds specifically. Come and see. He takes them to a specific location to teach and form them. They even say very specifically, it was 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Where is Jesus? Well, he's here. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And also, very specifically, working, moving, shaping in this house with these people at this time. These two disciples, they ask a great first question of discipleship. Where is the Lord? And it is a question that faithful disciples never stop asking. Because to ask where is the Lord is to say very specifically, where, Jesus, are you at work for such a time as this in our church? Where are you leading in our lives? Where are you shaping in our city, our nation, our world? How are you convicting? How are you prompting gratitude? How are you at work? Where are you, Jesus, for such a time as this? It's a question of discernment. Certainly, as Christians, we remember that in asking the question, where is the Lord, we need to remember, in one sense, the church has generation after generation, already answered how you get to those answers. We believe that God, in a very specific, unique, and authoritative way, speaks through Scripture. And even the preaching of Scripture. One of our confessions says, right, the preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. Where is the Lord? Well, speaking in and through Scripture and preaching. And we also believe that when we celebrate baptism and the Lord's Supper... So too, in a unique and mysterious way, God is especially present to wash and feed and renew. Where is the Lord? Mysteriously, by the power of the Holy Spirit, washing and feeding in the sacraments. Still, remembering that the Lord shows up and works and feeds in in these fundamental ways doesn't relieve us of the question, where is the Lord? Because, think about it, When you open scripture itself, what you find is that the Lord likes to show up and speak and communicate through all 
kinds of situations and people. Remember what Paul tells the pagan Athenians? God is not far from any one of us. So God could be near anybody. We read in scripture, God speaks through a burning shrub. God speaks through a plague of locusts. God speaks through the donkey of a guy named Balaam. God speaks through dreams. God communicates to Gideon through a wool fleece. God speaks through Babylon, an entire empire. God shows up in a lion's den with fire. God shows up through Hosea's unfaithful wife. God proclaims truth through blood on a doorpost. God shows up in a backwater town called Bethlehem in a feeding trough. God shows up right at Peter's workplace on the seashores where he fishes. God shows up in a specially present manner among the hungry, the thirsty, the imprisoned, the naked. Truly, I tell you, as you did to the least of one of these, you did it to me. God communicates in a foundational way through an instrument of torture. God put the first sermon, I have seen the Lord, on the mouth of a woman in a society where women had so little voice. God put half of the New Testament on the lips of a man who persecuted Christians. I mean, to ask, where is the Lord leading, working, speaking, moving, convicting, encouraging, is to open oneself certainly foundationally to Scripture, and also because of Scripture, to a wide variety of possibilities to how the Holy Spirit could be moving. I love uh, the quote from the American novelist John Updike, who said he believed his only duty as a writer was to, quote, describe reality as it had come. To give the mundane its beautiful due. He had this sense that not just in the pain and the tragedy and joys of life, but also in the mundane, the wool fleece and the wayward spouse, the doorposts and the dreams, the fishing villages and the feeding troughs, that in the mundane there is beauty to notice. And I would suggest that as Christians it is a fundamental duty for us to give the mundane its beautiful due. Because everything in scripture testifies to a God who is showing up and speaking and working and leading in the surprising and the mundane. Where is the Lord? Not a question asked out of curiosity, but a fervent desire to follow and trust the Lord is indeed near. Are we asking the question? Have we been asking the question? And if, upon reflection, we think, you know, I guess I haven't been asking that question a lot. Or we, the church, I'm not sure we've been asking that as as much or as regularly. I mean, I feel like I'm asking, we're asking a lot of questions. I'm not sure about where is the Lord. If we notice the question has not been one that's raised in our lives, in our churches, uh, Jeremiah too makes it clear that whether we think it's true or not, then likely we are digging a futile cistern somewhere. I mean, the crux of Jeremiah too is that when the people stop asking the question, where is the Lord, they start working very hard on a leaky cistern. Because once you stop looking for the fountain of living water, you feel this immediate impulse to create a space for some water. Stop inquiring about the fountain. Start trying to make our own. And sadly, some of us, we do, we get so deep in our cisterns, we really can't hear God's invitation or see any trace of some living fountain. 
Even whole churches can get to this point where, where we think it is all on our digging and everything else. If we're going to survive, we're going to make it, we're going to do it. But thanks be to God that even when people do fail to ask daily and longingly, where is the Lord? And we get stuck in these deep and broken and dark spaces. Thanks be to God that our God never stops asking this question. Where are my people? For God, this is not a philosophical question. This is a relational question bent on finding the people. And it is a question on the lips of God from first to last. Do you remember in Genesis when Adam and Eve, they, they go their way? They worry less about where God is leading and, and where another voice is leading. Do you remember this story? And what is the first thing God says after the disobedience? Where are you? God is seeking them out. And what does God declare time and again in the prophets? I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. Or or I will search Jerusalem with lamps. Implied in these declarations is God has asked, where is my people? And and, and responded to that question with a resolution. I'm going to find them. I'm going to bring them out. I'm going to get lamps to find them. And then I love how beautiful when, when God wants to describe, uh, when Jesus wants to describe really the heart of, of God, he tells this story of a woman, right, who has the ten coins and she loses one. Does not she light a lamp and sweep the house and search with all of her energy to find that one lost coin? Does not she put her entire being into finding the one who is in the dark? If we're not regularly asking, where is the Lord? And opening ourselves to the mundane and surprising ways that Jesus is leading and calling and shaping. If we have lost sight of that question and put more energy into cistern making than we might want to admit. We give thanks to our God who refuses to keep asking, where are my people? For a God who searches with lamps every corner of darkness. For a God who seeks out the insiders and the outsiders and the insiders who feel like outsiders. We give thanks to a God who is willing to go all the way down into whatever broken cistern of shameful sin or prideful digging or death itself. That we might be snatched into the sunlight. And drink before the fountain. Thanks be to God for God who never stops asking, where are my people? That the people might be drawn again to that place of love where they ask, where is the Lord? Because right when the question is finally reciprocated, the beauty of of marriage is restored. The way spouses are in one sense always with one another, and they don't need to ask, where are you? But in another sense, are always inquiring after one another because that is the nature of love itself. It is inexhaustible. It is always probing, always deepening. Where are you? May God find us anew this day. And may we offer ourselves anew unto God. Where are you? Lord. Amen.